Hello and a very warm welcome to this edition of the Africa Legal Podcast. And this week I am thrilled to be joined by managing partner of Lopez Attorneys Incorporated, Rue Lopez himself. And the firm are based in Johannesburg, South Africa. The firm is about two years old, and yet they'd already managed to seize the African Legal Award Award for Specialist Law Firm of the Year back in early September, was it, uh, Rue, that you and I were, were sat uh, in, in Johannesburg at those awards? Yes, Tom, that's right. Perfect. My mind doesn't fail me. Now, the firm has a very interesting specialization strategy, including developing areas such as animal welfare, ESG compliance, anti-bribery and corruption, data protection, dispute resolutions, a specific sectoral focus in pharmaceuticals, healthcare, cannabis and finance. And Rue, I think you were also given a nod in a shortlisting back in 2020, so your very first year of operation, when you were recognised as a finalist in the most promising newcomer category, again, at the African Legal Awards. So we've come a long way from most promising newcomer to specialist law firm of the year, where you were up against some, some pretty stiff competition, but you walked away with the win. So look, let's let's dive right into it and explore that a little bit. You know, you were a reasonably recently established firm, you know, a couple of years under your belt. So what what does it really mean to be recognized as specialist law firm of the year so early in your development? And, you know, the journey to get there and the, I mean, the why is a big question. No, no offense at all to the firm, but <laughs> what have you done in two years that is already impress the judges to that degree sure sure tom and thanks for having me and it's it's an absolute pleasure again talking to you here um so so tom i think that the important thing to understand is number one we why did we start rather uh it's a very interesting question that sometimes i ask myself the same question um but essentially when we look at the legal market in south africa and i don't think that it's only isolated to south africa i think it's a global issue is saturation, right? What we see is firms popping up left, right, and center, offering similar services to one another with no sort of uh, differentiating factor. And the the ultimate consideration is, well, what's going to set you apart in a saturated market from the firm that's across the road or the firm that's down the road? Yeah. And that sparks the consideration of, well, areas of specialization, uh, which then prompt you to move into the boutique category of of law firms, which uh, sound very bougie, if I can call it that. But essentially, throughout my career, and I had spent a considerable amount of time at my previous firm, what started to develop and what started to become a, a, of particular interest to me um, was an area that I found myself being very passionate about and being very close to, um, which was as a result of obviously my upbringing and having spent a considerable amount of time within the wildlife uh, setting, if I can call it that, uh, in my childhood and my teenage years. And that was in the realm of animal welfare. And what I realized is throughout that process that there were very few firms within South Africa that knew about animal welfare being a subset of the law, um, let alone practicing it in it. Um, 
and and that sparked my journey around a realization that there is a need for it, uh, especially considering how biologically diverse South Africa is as a country, currently ranked third in the world as the most, uh, you know, top three of the most biologically diverse countries in well, the world. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah. There you go. I've already learned something. <laughs> <laughs> and and throughout that process, that, that became one of the hallmark features of what we were going to do. So then is born the concept of, okay, well, we know that we want to be a boutique firm. We're going to be a small firm. We're going to be a small one-man show for the at least the initial stages. Yep. Um, and, and how are we going to get our name out there? How are we going to break barriers, right? I mean, everyone starts up a company and says we're going to break barriers until they realize how difficult it really is to create something from absolutely nothing. And throughout that process, <coughs> excuse me, what we realized, or what I realized at that time, was uh, the, the sheer extent to which the services impacted on other areas of the law. And, you know, you might be saying, well, really, how, how does animal welfare impact on other areas of the law? And the, the simple answer to that, Tom, is, is really, we've come off uh, a couple of months ago, a major investigation uh, around tender irregularities um, in the Western Cape on, on, a, on a pound that was being run. And that there was non-compliance with the Municipal Finance Management Act in the appointment of that service provider. And what was essentially occurring is certain kickbacks were being given for certain euthanizations of animals that were being that was that were stray at that uh, in that respect. And uh, essentially, that that shows you, and that's just one isolated instance. I mean, we can sit here for days, but ultimately, that shows you how it starts to then impinge on or, or be taken into account of uh, other areas of law. And then what we get is we start to get further instructions from other animal welfare organizations and assisting them. And that's, that's really how we started to build the practice as a specialist law firm with our predominant focus of uh, the subset of environmental law. And, you know, when you ask me how was my journey, I don't think it's the simple, well, it was great, it was easy. You know, flicked on the on switch and, and everything. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would be the dream, right? Is you walk away from structure, you know, processes, protocols, and you walk into your basement, which is where I was operating from for the first six to seven months when we started up, and there's nothing, right? You realize that there's nothing to go off the back of, and you have to create that. You have to develop that. You have to market. You have to be the best marketing person you can be. You have to be the best finance person you can be. Um, and at the same time, trying to be the best attorney you can be, right? It's, it's not no easy task. Um, so uh, the reality is when you, when you ask me how the journey was, it, it's, it's a roller coaster um, on full throttle, but at least you know that when you're going down, it's giving you the necessary momentum to get back up again, right? Um, and that sounds very detrimental, but it's not. It's just that there's always going to be ups and downs in anything we do. And, and, when, and then, you know, look, to, to, to circle back, when you were saying, you know, you, you, you're in that basement, you know, quite literally sometimes with nothing. I think that's, that's missing one thing, which is, is that, that ambition. And that passion, you know, it's a very long tunnel that you were looking down, but there was an incredibly bright and obvious light at the end of it. 
that you just stayed focused on. And that that is something which you, you have to acknowledge. But then the, that's not enough in itself. It's the detail that helps you get there. You know, knowing that you've got to get an angle on marketing. You've got to get basic financial literacy down to allow this to survive as a business. You know, passion is not enough. There has to be that paired with the kind of analytical thinking that'll get you there. Sure. And I think one thing to, to talk through as well is, I remember our first phone call, I was pushing, unexpectedly pushing my one-year-old daughter in a pram yes. around a lake uh, because <laughs> uh, I think her nursery had unexpectedly closed for the day or something. And I didn't want to miss our call because I was like, Look, I'll be very candid. I, I read our first emails and I was like, right, so he's a new law firm. You know, he's he's got big dreams and his angle is at animal welfare. Right. OK, I'll, you know, we'll, we'll have a chat and I'll find out that, you know, this is this has been something you've been doing for 20 years. And it's, you know, this little cottage industry. And I couldn't have been more wrong. We get on the phone and I was like, I've got to ask, what, what's this animal welfare angle? And you were like, Tom, think about it. What are some of the highest growth sectors in Africa? Agritech, um, agriculture, uh, 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 FMCG, manufacturing. Animals play a role in every single one of them, whether it's uh, harvesting them, transporting them, um, mm. uh, containing them, controlling them. And people aren't aware at just how much risk there is any time their businesses or their supply chains interact with these animals because there is already in certain regions like South Africa quite a developed legislative regime about animal welfare and that same trend is occurring in many of the continent's key markets so this is this is something that you cannot as a business avoid it's not some you know hippie new age issue you're like oh yeah by the way we look after the animals well no this is this is heavy duty lawsuit territory and and i literally my mind was blown slightly which takes a lot now because i've been doing this for and i went no wow and then i said is this this is working like revenues and growth and you know you were listing off some of the clients and i was blown away so this is this is like my own endorsement on think about it is my you know anyone listening to this just have a think about how your business or your clients businesses interact with with livestock or animals of any kind you'll be surprised so it's a yeah. it's a dog in the cap this isn't some cottage uh, new age dreadlock um scenario this is very real very potentially expensive and look, let's 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 go into that. Let's go into some of the, the the nitty gritty here. You know, ESG. Okay, it's a buzzword that oh, it's not a buzzword. It's a buzz acronym to some extent. You know, it's encompassing three massive issues in their own right. You know, environmental, social, and governance principles. I'm not entirely convinced that they can be grouped together in one way. Like it makes a nice acronym, but God, that's a big issue. How is ESG fitting into your uh, uh, service offering and your customer problems? Do you find that you're having to educate around the ESG issues for customers now? Um, how is the need for ESG-focused services starting to develop even further, in your opinion? Yeah. No, Tom, I mean, I think you've raised some interesting points, right? And, and when, when we look at it, 
globally, there is a major, major shift towards ensuring that organizations that operate uh, with impacts on the environment, and, and, and the reality is, let's, let's call a spade a spade. Every company that sets up has a footprint on the environment, regardless mm-hmm. of what you do. Right. Now, obviously, as we shift towards just transition from a climate change perspective, looking after the environment, making sure that we conserve, that we prevent biological or ecological degradation, the ultimate aim, if we ask ourselves the question of it, is, well, why should we care if a company or an organization is conducting itself in an environmentally friendly or sustainable way? And the simple answer to that question is, well, it's not only about now and today. It's about next year and five years' time. And in 20 years, what is the impact of what we've done today going to be? Right? And now I sound like a climate change activist, but I'm not. That's but- fine. I would, <laughs> I would put my, I, I'm quite happy to put myself in climate, climate change activist. You won't, you won't find me gluing myself to anything, but you will, you will find me screaming uh, any opportunity to say, yes, this is about next year. It's about 10 years. It's about your children's children, children. Um, no. So I'm, I'm happy to be an activist if you are, Ru. <laughs> <laughs> so, so ultimately what we see within the market shift, and I'll give you a comparator, Tom, is previously, 20 years ago, you would buy beauty products. You'd go out and you'd go into the shelf and you'd look for the one that looks the nicest and maybe is the most affordable and you'd go and you'd use it, Right. Then there came a campaign such as Beauty Without Cruelty that said, well, it's not only that we produce the product, but we don't test it on animals. Mm -hmm. And there became a comparator or a standard upon which consumerist behavior and how we would engage in the consumer market of purchasing these goods was then shaped. Because ultimately now, when you don't purchase a product that is Beauty Without Cruelty, for example, the implication or the implied provisions around that are, well, maybe it was tested on animals, right? So we get a shift in in how we perceive the goods or the services that we are procuring. And it's the same with ESG. When we look at it, there's a big focal point around it. And and as I said before, there's a big push towards it. And I tend to agree with you that environment, uh, you know, governance, societal or social issues can't be grouped together because they are different paradigms in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. Right? You can spend the next three hours talking about the environmental aspects of an ESG project or how you ensure that you're environmentally sound and that you're compliant and that you can you know, put out your ESG report and know that it's, it's correct and that it can stand muster. So the, the ultimate point of it and and where this ties into what we do. If you look at our slogan, we're sustainability simplified, right? There's a big push towards saying, well, attorneys need to simplify what they're doing and how they do it and how they communicate it. But at the same time, we all need to be sustainable in what we do. And And that can be sustainable from a profit generation perspective, sustainable in a litigation perspective, because remember, for most part of of what we do on a day in day out basis, you know, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint, right? And ultimately, when we look at how that features into what we do as a firm, the the, the important inflection point that is occurring currently 
is that those firms or those organizations that are yet to be ESG compliant or are not ESG compliant stand to face the risk of not being included in, let's just call it, I'll dub it, maybe I should copyright this, but the ESG economy. Yeah. In other words, the same way that the beauty products were no longer marked with beauty without cruelty, you stood by the wayside. It doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't profitable, and I don't know that. But ultimately, you don't partake in that economy, right? So ultimately, when we look at it holistically, we're saying, okay, what is it that you're saying in relation to what you do and what your organization does? The reality is that when you look at it from an environmental perspective, right? You, you go in, you mine, you extract resources, fossil fuels, whatever the case may be. How the organization does that, how it ensures rehabilitation of environmental aspects that maybe have been damaged or the like, are crucial. Now, those are legislated components within our framework. But the focus around ESG is bringing that more to the fore. And it's saying that, as, as organizations and Lopez attorneys included and Africa Legal included and whoever it may be, we need to be mindful of how we operate and how we interact within our economy, within our environment and within our society. And that speaks to everything we do. Right. Uh, you spoke about the fact that we, that we do anti-bribery and corruption, for example. That's a hallmark of governance. When we look at what's happened out of the State Capture Commission and organizations that were hauled before the State Capture Commission, one of the predominant hallmark features there, Tom, is that from a governance perspective, the House was not in order. Right. So now governance is included. How we treat employees, how we ensure that they're represented, that we adhere to labor standards as well within those ESG reports yeah. is important, is imperative, right? And ultimately, you know, you, you mentioned a couple of examples around agri-tech and the increase in agriculture and ecotourism and the like. Ultimately, what drives us is that there are marginalized areas that are defenseless. And I know that that sounds... Um, a bit of a far left statement, but the reality is, you know, when you haul 50,000 cattle on a ship and you take it across the equator and only 45,000 of those cattle arrive because the rest have died along the way, the reality becomes is there needs to be a, a defense mechanism, if we can call it that, in which those organizations, and if it's not an organization and it's the states, that the state be held to account for that. Because ultimately that cannot be the image that is portrayed for South Africa, for example, right? Uh, when we look at some of the developments uh, on your own home ground, uh, Tom, you know, there's currently a push in the House of Lords to, to ban trophy imports from yep. animals that are trophy hunted. And the question is why? Yes, that might not necessarily relate to the ESG projects or, or ESG, right? I mean, I don't think that the House of Lords will publish an ESG report. But ultimately, the, the fact remains is that globally, the trend is to move towards just transition, to move towards 
clean, sustainable methods of, of conducting business. Rue, here's a, here's a follow-up question, right? We've just mentioned legislation and you know specific regulatory examples around, let's focus in on the environmental side. Let's subsect that. Let's talk about animal welfare. So we've alluded to the fact that it was a social consciousness shift in consumers, which has had some of the most profound impact on companies' ability to get away with animal cruelty or testing or or whatever you like. So at that point of consumer interaction, a sticker, a logo or a statement has been enough to really drive change. Would legislation have had as effective a impact on corporate behavior as social consciousness have and by follow-on do you think that we are going to have to rely on ever increasing amounts and complexity of legislation and regulation around animal welfare to, to, to try and keep a lid on this? Or do you think there are ways that social attitudes or social consciousness towards animal welfare at all stages in the supply chain? Because that's the key thing here. It's only where consumers were exposed, that very, very end of the supply chain, that they were exposed to and individual retailers' involvement in animal testing. There there could have been a thousand different companies involved up until that point of that product landing on a shelf. Mm. So, look, long story short, uh, do you think that we are going to have to just see reams and reams and reams of legislation across the next, in perpetuity, as we try and enforce what we consider the right standards of animal treatment at a corporate level? Or do you think there is a momentum building around social consciousness at all stages of of supply chain? Which which Mm. do you think is going to be more important? Ultimately, Tom, I think that's a changes in consumer behavior, slapping on logos and the like and and branding is one but of many components or parts to the greater cog and mechanism that needs to work, right? So... The question then becomes as well, if it's one part or one element of it, well, what are the other elements? Right. And Tom, you alluded to it. The, the reality is it's multifaceted and it's got many aspects to it. And that is, well, consumerist behavior can change as societal views, as societal mores change. Uh, producers and and uh, you know individuals who are, who are in the the production line, if we can call it that, or the value chain, can also change their perceptions. And ultimately, that goes a long way. However, the other component that is often overlooked and where we really bolster what we do as a firm day in, day out, is how the state engages in this. What is the state's position vis-a-vis trophy hunting of, of threatened or protected species? What is the state's position vis-a-vis the live exportation of animals across the equator? And ultimately, that has to manifest itself into legislation, policy positions, white papers, regulation, bylaw. And 
the, the consideration becomes as well, is that giving effect to the standard of animal welfare? And it becomes a hotly contested area, don't get me wrong, because what one might perceive as an accurate or adequate standard, another may not. Right. And, and I think that if we were to go into that, we would be here until next week, Thursday. But ultimately, there must be a standard by which the state's conduct is tested against. And that, in terms of our South African listeners, is Section 24 of the Constitution for the most part. That's obviously pontiff of, of, of our legislative framework, right? Does, does it give effect to the constitution? Is it constitutional? And our courts yep. already said, well, you know, you can't have this unfettered socio-economic development occurring by extracting everything from the environment without considering the rest of it. And ultimately, what then stems from that is you've got enabling legislation, you've got NEMA, you've got NEMBA, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of true protection, Tom, and it was one point that you had raised is we have a robust and accurate framework and it's great, but ultimately it has its its pitfalls, right? And some of the major pitfalls is when we look at it, we've got the Animals Protection Act, and now I'm not saying that the Animals Protection Act is inaccurate or inadequate, but it is old. It is a 1960s piece of legislation, and that's the predominant animal welfareist-based piece of legislation that we've got. And it says in terms of Section 2 that there's a number of offences, you know, that you would be committing if you engaged in certain conduct towards animals. However, that's all good and well, and that can be inspected. And then the, the, the next consideration becomes as well, how's that enforced? Because... You know, we can sit here until we blew in the face talking about adequate legislation. And I think that South Africa has some really good hallmark pieces of legislation, I must say. But it's the enforceability that matters. You know, the, 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 the best will in the world is fantastic. Right. But unless people are actually being held to account, it, it's not worth the papers written on. And look, I, I've got my own opinions, which is that social normalized social norms are far more powerful in the longer term than legislation. No matter you are never, in my opinion, in something as almost niche, forgive the word, as animal welfare, going to be able to spend the money needed to enforce the letter of the law to the standard that 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 you would want i think a far more powerful force and i want you to 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 uh, uh, object if you feel differently rue is is social standards i i view legislation in this area as a starter pistol i think one of the dream scenarios and i'm interested in your opinion is legislating on these kinds of issues is what can motivate the discussion, the thinking, a baseline of, of standard and, and uh, accountability. But it's really where the concept of doing harm to animals pointlessly is, is viewed as such a universal truth and social norm. That's where the change really happens and you're not having to have a government find an extra $70 billion per year to enforce the letter of the, the the law. That was simply the thing that helped start it manifesting in social consciousness. What what do you think? I wouldn't say Theory it's totally off, off, or Tom. Totally I, mean, off. I think you've, you've raised important points. However, I think that we must also be cognizant of the fact 
that it's it's and I, I keep using this word I sound like a broken record but it's multifaceted right and and when I say that it's let me give you a practical example of something that we're currently dealing with in mitigation and that is what do you do about trophy hunting of top species do you stop it do you say it's unconstitutional because there are some individuals who've been born and raised within the culture of going out and, and hunting an animal and shooting it and placing it on the wall, right? So for those individuals, yep. and it's not me, you know, trying to ask them, it's, it's not at all. It is a belief, cultural, traditional. <clears throat> yeah, it's genuine. And it's, and it's, and you know what? It isn't. I, I would argue it isn't tantamount to sure, sure. Uh, livestock over the equator, you know, packed in, uh, you know, 20 high and, and 30 long. Sure. And, and, um, and, but anyway, you, and you ultimately, it's the divergence of beliefs, of traditions, of views within that society, right? I think that it's going to, the reality is it's going to take a hugely long period of time for everyone to be singing from the same hymn sheet. Now, for example, on the live export of cattle across the equator, there's a very specific purpose on why that happens, right? And, and that's to meet a religious practice over the equator that occurs. And, and I think that, that we need to be cognizant of that. We need to be respectful towards that. We can't show, you know, let's just say you can't just, shut that down completely without having considered all the views. But the problem that we have is that there are so many ends to the spectrum that they are so far apart from one another, right, that I think it will take extremely long to get there. What we found, at least within what work we've been doing, is that the most effective and, how do I say, the quickest way to, to bring about major change is to go to the source of the legislated permissibility to engage in that. And that is to say, you know, you may not want to buy this biltong of this lion. I'm just giving you an example. We don't do that. But you might not want to buy a lion biltong because the lion was shot uh, in a canned hunt. Right. Now, there's differing views that would emanate from that and there would still be a market for it at least somewhere and we see that with the lion bone trade for example the reality is there's still a market for it there's still a market for tiger bone there's still a market for rhino horn uh -huh. and when we look at it and we say okay the reality is enforceability is always going to be low we come to the realization that that must be the underlying basis for any discussion that we engage on. Enforceability by the state is going to be low, if, if, if it's even present. And when we take that into perspective and you say, well, how do we bring about the necessary change? I don't disagree with you that consumerists' role within this is huge. I don't disagree with that. And what you'll find is with players within the animal welfare space, that there are a number of different campaigns that are run. There's the campaign for the consumers, there's the campaign on producers and engagement with producers, and then there's the legal challenges. 
And those legal challenges, Tom, are often, in most instances, directed towards the state. Because ultimately, it is the state that licenses that facility uh-huh. to do what they do without having cognizance or sight of the standards of welfare, for example. So in terms of our you know, Environmental Management Act, you must obtain an environmental impact assessment in order to engage in a restricted activity, for example. And the consideration is, well, as part of that EIA process, surely the state must say, well, if you're going to keep 30,000 pigs in a 500-square-meter enclosure, it's not going to work. You know, they're going to be trampling one another. But what we find is that it still occurs and that the EIA has never even considered that, for example. So where you then hold the state to a higher level of account and you've got a court order that says you must do X and then they go and do X, or if they don't, then you've got a contempt application. You know, it's... How do I put it? I mean, you, you, you've asked me a difficult question. Let me put it up front. <laughs> no, that's 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 without a doubt. This is this is this is my job. I will look. I I, I think I know. I I absolutely agree here. This is. It would be a gross oversimplification to say um, uh, legislation should start it, but then a magical global social consciousness should should take sure. it from there. That's nonsense. It's never going to happen in a million years. On the on the state accountability point. Um, Interesting follow-up question, quite a short one. Do you find, and I think you'll have actual experience of this, the very act of bringing a legal challenge and the bright light of of press and coverage that that in and of itself can bring, even before a judgment is needed, have you seen a willingness of uh, the state to to settle, for want of a better word, or, you know, throw their hands up and shout mea culpa at the very initiation of a legal action? Or are they trying to fight every claim of culpability to the the bitter end? (laughs) I would love to say, I would love to say, (laughs) that as soon as we even threaten litigation, that there's a roundtable discussion and we're actually discussing what's the core issue. Right. It might not be the best long-term strategic plan for me um, in terms of how the firm would be able to survive. But, unfortunately, we don't see that. What we see is the defense, the defensive side um, of the state coming out and delaying a lot of the times, right? So we would institute proceedings and it would be delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. But ultimately, Tom, it is a non-wavering defense of their position to the end until a court order comes out. Will that change? Like how many court, I imagine that there aren't, there, there, there are some state actions, you know, around licensing, for example, that are the things coming up time and time again. How many times do they have to be hit with a court order before they actually realize that they should either profoundly change their behaviors, ideally, or at least just say, thank you for drawing our attention to this. Let's get around the table. Like, is that, I've got to, I've got to have some hope here. Is that going to change? Yes, it will. I mean, I'm also optimistic that it will. 
And the reality is one can't just engage in litigation just haphazardly. You know, you come across one contravention and you say, oh, let's go to court. Because that is not going to bring about the systematic change that needs to be to be present in order for the, for the state's conduct to change. In other words, let me put it differently. If I were to challenge one instance of a trophy hunter, and I say, well, when that hunter shot that rhino, that rhino limped and suffered for the next three hours before it died. You're not going to get the effective result to compel the state to act in a different way. It needs to be more pointed. No, we need we need a thousand data points on the average time between shot and death of the rhinos Correct. across a three year period was two and a half hours, but that takes a lot of time and a lot of resource and a lot of fact checking. What one hundred percent? And, and the consideration work. becomes as well: what are the likelihoods of you succeeding? Right. When you get into too much science and when you get into too much detail around it, you're not uh, going to tread lightly. It's, it's going to be a difficult point because not only do you need to be apprised of it, but you need to make sure that the judge is also apprised of it in order to get the order. Now, then you ask okay. this, yourself the question, okay. well, then what is the correct challenge? What is going to bring about the necessary change? And it's going to the heart of it and saying, well, you know, black rhino is a threatened species, right? It's, it's critically endangered. Do we have enough surplus to say, well, these 10 are now going to be on the walls of someone or someone's house, right? It doesn't make sense because then hence their critically endangered status. So by challenging it on that front and getting a successful order that ultimately shifts the paradigm of how or the lens rather through which this needs to be viewed through, what that does is is that that starts to change the state's conduct because they can't act differently to that. Because if they were to do that, it's a contravention of the court order. They are either acting unconstitutionally or they're acting in contempt of that order. And that is what ultimately is going to bring about the change, Tom. Is It's not, as I said, it's not an overnight uh, solution. It's a long-term you know, fight sure. to the end, if I can call it that, in, in challenging every practice that we see and, and how we can then shape that. It's a, a long stalk like through it. the bush. There we go. <laughs> let's use a hunting analogy uh, uh, for, for poignancy. Look, let's let's pivot back to the firm itself. I mean, I, I look forward to continuing this, but over a nice cup of tea um, uh, rather than a, 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 a Wi-Fi connection. Um, let's let's talk about the firm's ambition here. You know, you've done a lot in the short term and the recognition has been there. And that's fantastic. But getting a sense for the kind of person you are, Rue, you're going to keep having to push the boundaries here. You know, a couple of awards under your belt, it will give you that warm, fuzzy feeling for a couple of weeks, but then you're asking yourself, what next? So what is next? What What is the overall aim for you, for this firm, for you know, a, a, a movement mm. of sorts. So, so Tom, what's, it's interesting what's that you on ask the horizon? that because actually when, when we got back to the office as a team, 
after the African Legal Awards, I actually asked my team that. We sat down in the boardroom very quickly because it was quite late. But I said, guys, what's next? What is it that we now want to do further? Right. And ultimately, Tom, my vision is, you know, to, to have a firm which is international. In other words, an expansion within other African jurisdictions on the same basis, on the same model that was designed. And, and you ask me why? Why, Re? The Animals Protection Act in South Africa is the same piece of legislation for the most part throughout many African jurisdictions. And we've got the same factors there, socioeconomic inequality, hugely biodiverse and rich countries. Now, that's essentially what we see ourselves doing, right? But obviously, that's not the only thing we do. But ultimately, what I see in the next three to five years is an expansion of our office into Cape Town. Um, I think we're getting close to that, and I'm hoping that within Q2 or 3 of 2023, we'll see that coming forward. And we're currently in discussions with a number of firms across Africa Fantastic. Um, in, in creating a sort of a network of, of go-to firms within what resonates and what is in sync with the service offering that we do, obviously, and it's the interesting thing there, uh, you know, 99% of, of all firms still don't do animal welfare, but that's okay. Um, and, you know... <laughs> Yeah, keep it. And, keep and it kind of way. going through that yeah, process. So, <laughs> to answer to answer your question, Tom, what we see is both growth locally and hopefully crossing fingers internationally, um, and 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 through that process, carrying on to bolster our presence and and our market share of, of you know the clients we service within the South African legal market, and and the African legal market, if we can call it that, because ultimately we've already done some cross-border transactions, which have been phenomenal, I must say. Uh, we've done a bit of work in Mozambique. We've done some oil and gas uh, advisory work throughout African jurisdictions. Um, and we've done some transactions in Nigeria as well. So ultimately, what are we seeing is we're seeing the need and the desire for specialist boutique firms on the rise, right? We're seeing clients moving away from the okay. traditional concept of law firms and saying, well, I, I want to go for someone who's specialized and who knows the ins and outs of this industry and, you know, who's got that personal touch. Because ultimately a boutique firm, you go to a boutique firm and, and, and you want that personal touch that the person who's running your matter gives you, right? So we want to carry on bolstering that. And, yeah, as I said, you know, expansion into Africa, so, so those are our dreams and aspirations for the next three to five years. And, you know, if, if, if things go as well as they have been, I think that's absolutely attainable. And Ru, I'm, I'm interested to finish on a, on, a, on a poignant note for a poignant topic here, which is the, the, the animal welfare play is, you know, it's something that's obviously personally of, of, of great importance to you. And, and I dare say, you know, to, to a lot of people, but if there was one way of thinking or one understanding that you could impart to every business and individual when it comes to how they're interacting with, with the animal welfare agenda or, or, or wildlife in its entirety, what, what would it be? If, if you could it would be to reach out to us no, I'm joking, one Tom. issue um, 
ultimately, you know, the, the reality of the matter is I often see that the one side and the other, and when I say the one side and the other, the two ends of the table that we're all eating dinner at, right? The reality is the thought processes and the investment and, and the ideologies are not that far apart. It's important for a farmer to ensure welfare standards because ultimately that's the produce he's providing to a supermarket, right? And in doing so, if he doesn't do mm -hmm. that, he's impacting his own operations. So the welfare must be there. It makes sense. But it's to get around a table and to actually have a discussion and ongoing discussions about this and to create further awareness around it and how it, it impacts on, for example, you know, just as one subset, ESG. But if there was one parting note that I would say is, is hopefully going to bring this full circle is that the aspects around animal welfare are increasing. Consumers, producers, whoever it may be, need to become more cognizant of it as a legal obligation. And the reality of the matter is that sooner or later, as we continue through this process, it's not going to be a negotiable anymore. It's going to form part, and it must form part of your ESG, if you have those impacts within your operations on animals, for example. What are the standards? So that would be my parting point on that front. And I think it's a very, very valid one. Um, you know, you, you got me thinking about just how much every business that I'm involved in interacts with animals. And it is a lot more than you'd think. Um, and, and I think you've placed yourself in a great space, a very interesting space, a dynamic one. Um, and your success today is much deserved, Rube. So uh, fantastic to see and, and fantastic to have Thanks, you Tom. here Thanks for having me. Uh, with me today. Amazing experience. So thank you. fantastic and i hope it's been an amazing experience for all of our listeners uh, if you are new to the africa legal podcast don't forget that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts whether it's google Podcasts, apple Podcasts, spotify soundcloud even amazon music we are there for you and as always don't forget to visit us at africalegal.com for all the news views and insights that improve your life as a modern african legal practitioner so without further ado, this has been Tom and Rube, and we're signing off for the Africa Legal Podcast.